The story of, of Adam and Eve is told in some traditional circles this way, that God came to Adam and said, Adam, I am going to create for you a woman. And I want to tell you about this woman. When you start out your day, she will be up before you. She'll have bacon and eggs on the table. She'll be fully dressed, makeup on, and she'll greet you with a smile. And, and when you come home, she will insist that you sit down on the sofa. And she'll take your shoes off and rub your back and bring you nachos and assorted snacks while you watch sports and she will cook for you, she will clean for you, she will pick up after you. When you get in an argument, she'll always be the first to admit that she's wrong. And when you're lost while driving, she'll never ask you to ask for directions. She'll just assume that you know where you're going. Adam said, wow, this, uh, this sounds amazing. What's it gonna cost me? God said, it's gonna cost you an arm and a leg. Adam said, what can I get for a rip? That's how the story of creation goes in some circles, but we're going to jump right into the actual account. Let's take a look at God's word. Open your Bibles, if you would, to Genesis chapter 2. This is an easy one. This is an easy sword drill. Genesis is the first book in the Bible. Genesis chapter 2. And we're going to start in verse 18 and look at the actual story. In verse 18 it says, And the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. If you have your own Bible, you have a pen, you might want to underline, it is not good that man should be alone. It's going to be important for our study today. I will make him a helper, and you're going to want to underline this too, comparable to him. Out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the air and brought them to Adam to see what he would call them. And whatever Adam called each living creature, that was its name. So Adam gave names to all cattle, to the birds of the air, and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper, you can underline this again, comparable to him. Notice that in all of creation, there is only one thing to which God says, it is not good. And the one thing that God declared to be not good, this is on your outline to fill in, was Adam's single state. God said it's not a good thing. And God said that because God wasn't finished yet. The Apostle Paul, who wrote the book of Ephesians, says this in 1 Corinthians 7, verses 8 and 9. He says, but I say to the unmarried and to the widows, it's good for them if they remain even as I am. Paul was single at that time. But if they cannot exercise self-control, let them marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. If you're a single young person, you probably just found your life verse right there. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. And so here's the bottom line. Adam is not at the end of his story yet. God is not finished with Adam. So what even Paul is saying, he's saying, listen, if God has put in you this desire to be married, he's put in you this passion for a spouse, you're not called to be single. Otherwise, it wouldn't be there. What it is is an indicator that God is not done yet. And we know that God calls some people to be single, but I think it's a lot rarer than we might even think. Because I know they exist, but I've never met the dude who said, no, I'm good. I don't need that it's scratched. I just haven't met him yet. And so I have to believe that according to God's word, just as it was for Adam, their story is not done yet. 
If you're single, you might have felt a, a hint of loneliness this week on Valentine's Day, but I promise that Adam felt lonely on a level that you and I cannot comprehend. Can you imagine him there realizing that his odds of finding a mate are zero? Factually, scientifically, zero. There's no amount of self-improvement. He doesn't need to shave or bathe more. There is nobody. There's nobody. Nobody. So Adam is there naming the animals, and he's saying, Mr. and Mrs. Lion, Mr. and Mrs. Rhino, Mr. and Mrs. Parrot, Mr. and Mrs. Grizzly Bear. Then it just kind of hits Adam. Oh, forever alone. Adam. He could have been overwhelmed with that panicky feeling of, I, I, I got to do something about this. I, I, I got to fix this. And he could have gone out beating through the bush, turning over rocks, looking for a mate. And all that he would have found would have been an orangutan or, or maybe a chimpanzee. And you could have, but Adam didn't come back with a chimpanzee or an orangutan. But sometimes we see people that do. They get in this panicked state in their singleness and they come back with an orangutan. And they say, sure, you know, he's, he's a little hairy and overbearing, but this is, this is as good of a match as I'm going to find. But Adam doesn't do that. Adam just waits because he realizes God is not done yet. He doesn't panic and in his panic take matters into his own hands and say, I'm going to solve this problem. You don't want to end up married to a monkey. Trust me, trust me. This is where Adam finds himself. And we'll keep reading in verse 21. God steps in and it says, The Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam. And he slept. And he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh in its place. Then the rib which the Lord God had taken from man, he made into a woman and he brought her to the man. When Adam was in a deep, death-like sleep, a bride was brought forth from out of his side. Thousands of years later, the man the Word of God calls the last Adam, Jesus Christ, would enter death, and a bride would come forth from his side. And while he was hanging on the cross, we know that the Roman soldier pierced his side to see if he was dead. And when it pierced his side, what flowed out of him? It's blood and water, is what Scripture says, which are the exact same two fluids that are involved in the birthing process. And a bride was born on the cross. The church was born, you and me. Scripture tells us that we are made in the image of God. In Genesis 1.27, this means that both the masculine and the feminine characteristics of God are represented in men and women because we're both representative of the image of God. You can put this on your outline. The masculine and feminine characteristics of men and women reveal who God is. God's strength is revealed in men and God's beauty is revealed in women. God's Hunger for justice is represented in men and a sensitivity and gentleness is represented in women. And when God created woman, he took something out of Adam. And what he took wasn't simply biological material. God wasn't like, 
Oh, well, I need, uh, I need some stem cells to get this process started. God wasn't confined by that. What he took out of Adam wasn't just physical, it was metaphysical. It was part of Adam's essence. It was part of who he was. So ladies, when you find yourselves lamenting a man's lack of gentleness or a man's lack of sensitivity, remember, he doesn't have those characteristics because God has divided his characteristics between men and women. He hasn't given us all the same characteristics. He's divided them and he's made us that way. So wives, you came from the side of man and you'll find your fulfillment beside your man. Not, not in front of him, leading him, not behind him, following him, but beside him. Letting him lead as you stand at his side. But you need to know your husband will never be everything that you want him to be. A rib was taken from Adam and men have been missing something ever since. It's just the truth. There's only one who has it all together and that's Jesus Christ and he is not missing a thing because he wasn't born the way that every other Adam was born. Jesus wasn't born the way that everybody else was. He's the only one who will not only listen to you and walk with you, but will empathize with your heart, will listen to the cry of your heart. There's only Jesus who can do that, only Jesus. The needs that Jesus meets for us are needs we have daily. Everybody say daily, daily. If our daily needs aren't met by Jesus, we'll look to our spouses and inevitably be disappointed. Inevitably be disappointed. When we start seeking what we crave from Jesus first and not from our spouse, we take the pressure off our spouse to be something they can never be and we're able to appreciate them for who God made them to be. When we find our daily fulfillment in Jesus, one of the most beautiful things about God's design for marriage is that together, combined as a couple, you represent a fuller picture of God to the world around you because you possess both the masculine and the feminine characteristics of God. When you come together, you're able to represent God more fully to the world around you. It's a beautiful thing. It is the, the short-sighted spouse who complains, they're not like me. They're not like me. When you understand God's plan for marriage, how he intends to use you both, you'll still say, they're not like me. But you'll say, praise God, they're not like me. Thank you, Jesus, they're not like me. And you'll appreciate the differences that God has built into men and women. They've been built by design that the fullness of God might be better revealed in the union of marriage. The fullness of God might be better revealed. You can put this on your outline too. This is a huge concept that will give you such insight in times of strife in your marriage. Marriage is simply discipleship. Marriage is discipleship. All those flaws in your spouse, those little things that when you were dating you were like, oh, isn't she adorable? That now are just like, nails on a chalkboard to you that drive you crazy, the things that you thought, oh, he's so quirky. And now you're like, seriously, will you stop? All those little things, 
all those habits they can't seem to break. They're there by design because God wants to disciple you through marriage. Everything makes more sense when you go back to God's greatest goal for your life. What is it? What is God's greatest goal for your life? It's not first and foremost that you would be happy. It's not first and foremost that you would be healthy. It's not first and foremost that you would be wealthy. God's greatest goal, desire, and design for your life is for you to become more like his glorious son, Jesus. That's God's greatest goal for you. That process of becoming like Jesus is called sanctification. It starts the minute you give your life to Christ, and when you get to heaven in his presence, it will be completed fully. But the moment you give your life to Christ, God goes to work on making you more like his son, Jesus. The Bible says being conformed to his image, becoming like him, getting a new identity. And when it comes to this issue of discipleship, God puts all options on the table. And here's what you find. You find that you don't really grow when everything is easy. Nobody has the story of, oh, yeah, I tried this awesome diet. What I do is I sleep a lot. And um, the six-pack just appeared. It was amazing. But in life, we see again and again this principle that when we're stretched, when we're pushed past our limit, that's when we grow. Man, I wish that wasn't true. I wish that wasn't true. But when I look back in my life and I look at the times that I grew the most, none of them were in times when things were easy. So God puts all options for discipleship on the table, including marriage. And so when you have strife in your relationship, when you have strife in your marriage, stop and ask the question, God, what are you doing here? What are you doing here? And you will gain a level of insight that will change your perspective on the situation completely. God, what are you doing here? How do you become more patient? You have opportunities to be patient. How do you become more gracious? You receive grace and you have opportunities to show grace. When you're stretched and you're stretched in your marriage, that's when you grow. That's when you grow. So when you look at your partner and think they're deficient, they're lacking some really basic stuff, remember that the same is true for you. And it's by God's design. Let's continue in verse 23. It says, And Adam said, speaking of Eve, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. That's a Hebrew idiom meaning exact counterpart. He's not saying she looks like me. He's saying she is my exact counterpart. God is a, a triune God. We know there's the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And because we're made in his image, we are triune beings as well. We have our bodies, which relate to the, the physical world around us. We have our soul, which speaks to the mind and, and, and the emotions. And we have the spirit, and that's the part of us which relates to God that's going to live forever. We are triune beings as well. And I believe it, it was a matching of body, soul, and spirit in Eve that caused Adam to say, she's bone of my bone. She's flesh of my flesh. She's my exact counterpart. Body, soul, and spirit. 
When those three things are, are mirrored in a marriage, it is a match made in heaven. But the problem is we tend to settle for two out of three. So often, so often. You have the couple that says, you know what, we, we communicate well, we, we love the same things, it's fantastic. I find her very physically attractive, very physically attractive, but spiritually, she likes to go to church on Christmas and Easter, and I'd like to go to Africa and be a missionary. You can have a major, major problem in your relationship because the filter that you see life through is different. Your values are different. Your priorities are different. Maybe you say, you know what? This is the most godly person that I've ever met. They're a, they're a great listener, just a super person. Are you attracted to them physically? They're a great person, a great person. It's gonna be a problem later on when somebody shows up who checks that box and is physically attractive. It's gonna be a challenge. But if you have the person that says, this person loves God, I'm attracted to them physically, do you like talking to them? Eh, not so much, you know? I like ministering beside them. I like the physical side of things. I don't really like to talk so much, so much. You're gonna have a problem. You're gonna have a major problem. What are you gonna talk about for the rest of your life? But so often we settle for two out of three and regretfully sometimes even one out of three. You might be thinking, this, um, this would have been a great teaching to hear um, before I got married. But if that's you, I, I want you to know that God has a way of using less than ideal situations, bringing back to that goal of making us more like Jesus. It's what Jacob could have said when, when after working for seven years to earn the right to marry his sweetheart, Rachel, he woke up and found out that his stepfather had tricked him and he had wed Leah the homely one. He worked seven more years for the right to marry Rachel, who he really loved. But when it was all said and done, when Jacob died, do you know who he asked to be buried with? Asked to be buried with Leah. The reason is that Leah gave birth to a son, and that son had a name Judah. And from that same line, Judah, would come Jesus Christ, the Messiah thousands of years later on. See, God can move in less than ideal circumstances, but if you have the choice, don't give him a challenge. <laughs> Just make sure all three boxes are checked. Sometimes you see people who end up in a, in, a, in a difficult marriage, but the truth is they would say, you know what, we, we had two out of three. Two out of three, but I'd do it all over again because two out of three brought me closer to Jesus taught me more about his love and his grace than anything else in my life ever has. I'd do it again because God can use that. What God desires, you can put this on your outline, for us is a true counterpart in marriage. He desires a true counterpart, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. And we know that Romans 8.28 gives us the answer when that doesn't work out. It says, and we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. If you're two out of three and that one out of three area is a challenge, you hold on to that verse. God is going to work all things for good if you'll put him first. 
if you've gone through a divorce, if you've dropped the ball, if you said, I, I married someone with one out of three, we're not even together now. I want to remind you that Scripture says every single one of us have completely blown it. Every single one of us have completely blown it. But the cross takes care of our shortcomings, our sins, and our failure. All we have to do to experience the healing of Jesus Christ is own our mistake. Say, yeah, I, I, I did mess that up. I failed there. And Jesus can come in, work Romans 8, 28, turn it for good, and before you know it, your greatest failure can become your greatest point of ministry. And you'll be able to minister to someone else in that exact situation. And God will use you. Let's continue in verse 23. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Verse 24 says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become, underline this, one flesh. One flesh. All of this is leading up to this idea, this, this concept, this design, that two become one. Everybody say this like you mean it. Everybody say one. Oh, that was horrible. Everybody say it like you mean it. Say one. All right. You guys are waking up a little bit. That's good. Slowly waking up. There is a new identity that is created. There's a new identity created. And one of the most significant trends in our society today is marrying later and later and later in age. And when I started looking up on this, the reasons for this are very different to what you might expect. The primary reason people get married later on in life is that they don't want to end up divorced like their parents. It's not because people don't value marriage. A lot of the time it's because they value it so much they absolutely want to get it right and they're terrified that they're going to get it wrong. And so they wait and they wait and out of good motives they end up doing things like living together which actually sabotage them later on and create patterns of quitting in relationships. But a lot of us, by the time when we get older, we get married, we've become very good at being selfish. It's more common to get married at 30 than 20 now. And if you're not careful unintentionally, you become kind of professionally selfish. And here's what I mean. You go into houses now, you go to the master bedroom, and it's like a showcase for minimizing the inconvenience of living together. Two closets. Our clothes don't even have to touch. This is, this is amazing. You know what's even better? Two bathrooms. None of this, oh, get out of my way. None of this. Two bathrooms. It's amazing. You know, I'm waiting, for, I'm waiting for the day, you know, when there's like the marriage bed and then there's two separate beds in different wings of the master bedroom so you don't even have to touch when you're in a bed. Somebody in here is like, that's a million dollar idea. I'm writing that down right now. But everything we do is designed about, okay, we're going to come together and get married, but how can we minimize the inconvenience of having to become one? How can we minimize the sharing? That's really what I'm interested in. And unintentionally, we become professionally selfish. And, I, and I'm even guilty of this. We have a giant king-size bed because I'm not somebody that likes touching when I'm sleeping. I like to say I love you and then roll over into my own country. That's the way that I like to sleep. Because we're all so big on like, ah, don't inconvenience me, don't inconvenience me, you know? We have bathrooms the size of third world houses and we're like, there's not enough room in here. Get Get out, get out. So we become very, very good at being selfish. But we have to realize that we have taken on a new identity when we get married. We have a new identity. There shouldn't be a war going on to keep the old one. 
because we've traded that for something far, far better. So if you're a young person who's single, how do you guard against ending up in this place of selfishness, having all these issues related to selfishness to deal with when you get married? How do you do do that? The answer is simply make your life about serving other people now. Make your life about serving other people. And it'll deal with the selfishness issue. And you'll be ready to live a life that is about another person when God calls you to do that. But don't fall into the trap of developing patterns of selfishness. You know, I, I always, my mind is blown whenever I meet a single person who says, who has four or five hours of free time every evening, says, I just need some more kind of me time. And it's like, well, what are you doing for five hours every evening? If you're a guy, don't be playing World of Warcraft. Don't be playing video games and setting up this pattern of saying, you know what my thing is? My thing is kind of just gaming all the time. Sensing a spirit of conviction from some of the guys in the room right now. If you're a girl, don't spend five hours every evening reading books about men who don't exist. (laughs) Don't do it. You're not developing the right patterns of thought. The people who I know who are single, who I think have the greatest chance of success in marriage, are the people who are right now busy being about other people. They have made their life about other people. When they get married, they're going to be fine because they haven't been the center of their own lives for years. The people who have problems are the people who are like, God, I just wanna come home and game for four hours. Is that so much to ask? And you're like, talk to me, talk to me. You know, those are the people who have problems, you know? Or the people, the people who say, what? Our laundry is doubled? I didn't sign up for this. Make your life about other people and you'll be ready. You'll be ready to be married because you're used to serving other people and not having your life be about yourself. Guard against selfishness. It happens more easily than you think. When we receive Christ, we receive a new identity. We spoke about this a couple of months ago, but when someone says, I've given my life to Jesus Christ, there's no set of questions you can ask them on the spot to find out if that's really true. You will see it in their life over the coming months. Because when Jesus enters your life, all your priorities change. Instead of being about building your kingdom, you become about building his kingdom. Instead of chasing the things you want, you chase the things he wants for you. Everything changes over time. God begins to change the way you think and how you prioritize. When you enter a marriage, the same thing is true. And I would say that when you look at someone's marriage, you can tell whether or not They've really gotten married emotionally, physically, on the spiritual level. Sometimes you've signed the paper, but you haven't really become married on a spiritual level because your priorities have stayed the same. You're still the center of attention. It's all about you and about fulfilling your goals. But when you become married, you take on a new identity. You become one. Your priorities change. There's no longer independence. You become One, in a glorious, glorious way. My wife speaks for me, and I speak for my wife. We stand together. You don't like my wife, we're not going to get along. You don't like me, you're not going to get along with my wife, because we're one. And we hear a lot of talk today. You can turn on TV a lot of times, tune into any talk show that's popular with women, and you'll see women talking about, you know, I was in a marriage, and I just... uh, 
I realized I was losing myself. This is a phrase you hear a whole lot. And the reason why that happens is because you're supposed to lose yourself. You are supposed to lose yourself. It's not about saying, I got married, but how can I keep everything the way it was? How can I make sure that I'm still able to do all the things that I want to do? Marriage is saying, no, 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 I'm, I'm becoming something different. We're becoming one. I am agreeing to lose myself. We are becoming one, a better union. That's what we're doing. That's what I'm signing up for. Unity and oneness. Being one means that there can't be pain in one part of the marriage and happiness in the other. There can't be struggle in one area and happiness in the other. Everything is to be shared. This is important. This means there's no such thing as a winner and a loser in any marriage situation. There's no such thing as a winner and a loser. I figured this out early on in marriage, having arguments where I would win, but when you look over and your wife is crying, you don't feel like a winner. You realize you didn't win anything. You didn't win anything because the goal is unity. Unless you both win, nobody wins. Or as my father-in-law wisely said, sometimes it's just about being equally miserable. And the reason he shares that is because you will encounter situations in life where there's no winner. We had one the other day, it was me and my wife, and the decision was, Jeff, do you wanna clean up vomit or the exploded diaper? Hmm, which one's the win? Sometimes there isn't one. It's just about a shared experience. But you know, even in those moments, the selfishness rises up within me, and it's like the moronic, selfish part of me wants to say, well, can't you handle both? But fortunately, by now, there's, there's a small filter that has come between my brain and my mouth, and I just nod my head and say, I'll go with poop. And... Uh, <laughs> It's just about having a shared experience. It's about having unity. It's about doing life together. Can you imagine if, if the brain and the body were not in cooperation and the brain said, let's walk forward, and the body said, not gonna happen. You just literally fall right over. There has to be harmony between the two. So I wanna encourage you in marriage, don't make major decisions till your spouse is on board. Take the time to get them on board, if you believe it's the right thing. Take the time to work through it, because it's not gonna get better when you take the step and they feel like they weren't even a part of the process. You've gotta find a way for both of you to win. In Amos 3.3 it says this, this is a great verse. Can two walk together unless they are agreed? Can two walk together unless they are agreed? If you don't have unity in your marriage, you're in trouble. You're in trouble. We spoke last week about the importance of having God as the authority in your marriage. There's no better way to have unity than to have God as the authority in your marriage. Because the issue isn't, hey, do you agree with your spouse? Do you agree with your spouse? The issue is, do you agree with God? And if we can both agree that God is someone worth listening to, you're gonna end up in a place of unity because God is the authority in your marriage. I want every single person here who's single to hear this. Remember this verse. And remember today that somebody told you plainly, don't marry somebody who doesn't have Jesus as the center of their life. Don't do it. Don't do it. 
Couches in pastors' offices are filled every week in every city in the world with women crying who thought they would be able to win him over to Christ. And it's 17 years later, and it hasn't happened. And God can still do good there, but that is a painful journey for them. Don't do it. Don't marry your ministry. Don't marry your ministry. Don't do it. Can two walk together unless they are agreed? The answer is no. They can't. They can't. So married couples, God, God's will and design is that you would be one. Not competing pieces of a union, but complementary pieces of a union. That's God's plan for you. So today, I want to ask you, we're going to get ready to, to take communion in a minute. And I want to ask you if there's any issues in your marriage that need addressing. Please don't address them here, although that would be very exciting. Please don't do it here. Wait till you get home. But what you can do here if you're with your spouse is at some point in the worship that follows, you can go get communion. You can just sit down and you can just say, hey, I love you so much. I'm so glad you're in my life. I'm thankful to God for you. You can take communion together if you want to do that. If you're single here, I want to remind you that God is not finished with you yet. He's not finished with you yet. Don't marry an orangutan. Don't marry someone that you're not in agreement with. Don't settle for one out of three or two out of three. Wait for three out of three. This is something I go back to when things seem impossible. If Jesus Christ could rise from the dead... Don't you think he can find you a spouse? I think he can do it. I think he can handle that. You're probably thinking, you don't understand. He can do it. He can do it. With man, things are impossible, but with God, nothing is impossible. Nothing's impossible. If you're waiting and it's been a while, it just means God is pulling off something ridiculous to get the person into place that you need to spend the rest of your life with. But you use this time to just give that to God one more time in your life. Say, God, I, I want the person that you've made for me. I don't want to go looking through the jungle, turning over rocks, coming home with a chimpanzee. I want something better. I want your best for me. Give that to God one more time as you take communion.